0: Is where we're at this morning. I'll give you a second to turn there. Revelation chapter 14. All right. Um, before we, we're going to probably make it through a few of the verses this morning. Um, we're going to read through verse 13 together, though. But in just a minute, we're going we're gonna to read it. But um, just to kind of uh, bring some of us up who may not have been coming up to speed, and, and, and this chapter, and, and you're going to see this chapter is, is really the last from um, where we began in chapter 10 of, of a section within the book of Revelation. And um, I'm going to talk about it a little bit, but the book of Revelation doesn't necessarily follow a chronological order in that chapter 1 tells of events coming to place uh, in this portion of the tribulation chapter 2 tells events coming to things that will come to pass in, in 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 this time of the tribulation and it doesn't necessarily follow a timeline per se although there is timelines within the book of revelation that we can follow that distinguishes events that will take place during the tribulation period. In verse, and the reason why I tell you that is because in chapters 10 through 14, it's really accounting for us events that are going to take place at the midway point of the tribulation period. And, and I think in total, there's like eight different times in chapters 10 through 14 where we are told about a period of time, um, either a period of time that has passed, 42 months or three and a half years or a period of time that is yet to come for some things that are going to take place at this midway point. And again, it's either referred to in these chapters as 42 months or a uh, three and a half year period of time. And I know if you guys are kind of doing the math, and some of you, you you may do that in your mind, but you go, well, 42 months doesn't equal three and a half years. But if you go back to a biblical calendar, a prophetic calendar, um, we're operating on, on a thirty. Uh, on a 360-day on a year. It's a different uh, calendar than what we follow today. And it has to do with the lunar and solar calendars and, and, and different things. But the reason why I tell you that is because um, when we come to chapter 14, we're still dealing with um, the events that are to take place uh, during the three and a half uh, year, at the three and a half year mark, during the the, the the halfway or midway point of the tribulation period, in chapters 10 through 14, to count all of that. But there's a shift here in chapter 14 that might throw us off. And and we have to maintain this contextual flow that's so important as we study verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And with that said, I want to kind of recap uh, in somewhat detail the things that we read in chapter 13 because they tie closely to what we're going to study and read through this morning in chapter 14, and when we ended chapter 13, we—if you remember—we did so by discussing the mark of the beast. And, and clearly, when the antichrist raises to power, and and uh, the the second beast and the, the false prophet comes, and they they uh, demand the, the antichrist demands to be worshipped. The, the 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 mark of the beast then is brought. To the, to the forefront of, of, of the events that are taking place at this time, as we read of events taking place in the future, um, we see that um, all of these things will have an effect on people who are living at that time, at the three and a half year mark. Um, and, and, and what we see is that those who are living during this time, at this three and a half year mark of the tribulation, they're going to be faced with a decision. A choice. They're going to have to decide if they'll take this mark of the beast. And this mark will either be placed, we're told, on their right hand or on their forehead. And um, it's identified at the end of chapter 13, if you want to look there in the last uh, several verses of the chapter that we studied through last week. But it's, it's that mark is identified as being the name of the beast or the number of his name. And they're synonymous, one and one the same. And even though We discussed in great detail last week um, what this mark represents as we studied through the last verses of chapter 13. It's important to keep in mind this. It's important to keep in mind as we now continue on into chapter 14 is what the underlying point is. What's the underlying reason of why we're being told this? And the underlying point of all this is to show how the antichrist. Who 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 will establish a one-world government, a one-world religion that he will be the authoritative power over? Is that is that the underlying point of all of this is to show how the Antichrist will put or place his satanic name upon the inhabitants of the earth as a mark of his ownership? You know, uh, when 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 I was a mechanic. Uh, What mechanics do is is they get tools. Snap-on guy comes by and they spend way more money than they probably should on really cool tools. But almost every mechanic has in his toolbox an electric engraver. And you know what he does with that? As soon as that tool comes out of the package or the box, he engraves his name on it. And, and what he's doing is he's marking it, and he's saying, this is mine. And he's letting all the other mechanics in the shop know that this is not yours, this is mine, and if I do happen to let you borrow it, it better find its way back, because it's mine. It's got my name on it. And, and that's the idea with the mark of the beast. Now, it has different things that it, that it um, will enable or, 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 or permit certain people to do, but ultimately, the underlying point of all this is to show ownership, not only ownership, as the Antichrist is claiming and showing ownership over the inhabitants of the world, it's also a mark of their citizenship into his kingdom. That's kind of creepy. When you think about it and you read about these things and you know what what all of this entails, it's a mark of His ownership and a mark of their citizenship into His kingdom. Now, in chapter 13, we are told that anyone who does not take the mark that they will not be able to buy or sell. And the mark seems to appear somehow to interact with a person's ability to purchase what they need to survive. But more importantly, a person's decision To take the mark is a choice to worship the Antichrist. We're told it's a choice to forever forsake God. However, if a person refuses to take the mark of the beast, if they refuse to worship the Antichrist, they'll be sought out. They'll be sought after. And they will be killed. And even though they may die a physical death, we see here in this chapter... Chapter 14, that their decision to put their faith in Jesus will save their lives for the eternal life that is to come. Now, as we move into chapter 14, and I'm going to read it here just in a minute, we need to keep this contextual flow. We need to keep these things, these points, these ideas in our mind. And when we, when we do so, it becomes apparent to us, it should become apparent to all of us, that we're still discussing The mark of the beast. We're still talking about the mark. Specifically, a contrast. A contrast between the mark of the beast and um, the genuine mark of God. Which is, um, and we know that 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 what we see in this is we see that 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 the mark of the beast is really only a satanic imitation of what God has already done during this time. And this again points out how Satan is nothing more than a deceiver. He's an imposter who can only imitate the real things of God. He can only uh, imitate the good things of God. And he does so in an attempt to hide and lead people away from the truth. And in light of this, we need to keep in mind that Satan's lies, that Satan's deceptions will always lead to death. Not just future speaking, not just in the tribulation period, but now. Satan's lies, Satan's deceptions always leads to death. It leads to destruction. While the good things of God, the true things of God, the real things of God will always lead to life. And this distinction is what's being brought forth or taught to us in this chapter. And if you look at verse 1, we read and it says, chapter 14, John still speaking, still writing, to, still counting to us the things that he heard, the things that he saw. He said, then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of of a loud, of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they sang, as it were, a new song before the, before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins." These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then verse 6, I saw another angel. This, this, these verses here blow my mind. And and I don't think we're going to get time to talk about them. I wish we did. We'll see what happens. But definitely um, next week. And it says in verse 6 that then John says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having an everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And I told you many times as we've gone through this book, and here it is now, uh, again, is that there's times during the tribulation period where there are, angelic beings, angels of God that go forth as witnesses to testify. And, 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 and let this again be a, a message to us that, and a reminder to us that, that God's strange work is His outpouring of His wrath. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires that all men be saved. It says that He's willing in 1 Peter that none would perish. That all would be saved. And we know that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, it says that God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through it, it might be saved. That's God's will. That's God's desire. And even during this time, and we've read now of some really troubling and horrific things that we know and grateful that we're not going to be a part of, but even in the midst of this, we see God's desire for these men, these inhabitants of the earth, even those who have taken the mark of the beast. There's this desire, God has a desire for them to be safe. So much so that he sends out with his angels the gospel message to be proclaimed through all the earth again. To every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Saying with a loud, with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made the nation drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed, them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, again, a warning, and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and who worship whoever receives the mark of his name. Here, again, we've read this same kind of a statement previously, but here it is again. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works that follow them. Let's pray. Lord, I know that You have a desire for us to hear, to read, and to understand. I pray, God, that You would help us to do that today through Your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that You would minister to us as individuals, that You would meet us each one of us where we're at. Father, that we would see the truth and know that it leads to life. I pray, God, that we would submit our lives to You once again, calling upon the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, to um, intercede in our lives, Lord, to um, lead us into truth, to guide us, Lord, every day into that relationship that You desire to have for us, that You gave so much in order that we might, Lord, be in fellowship with You. Father, we desire to be in fellowship with You. And we pray, God, that nothing would um, hinder that. And as You speak to us and minister to us this morning, Lord, as You show us Your great love for us, I pray, God, that we would give You our heart completely. And Lord, as we see the future events coming and see them, Lord, perhaps coming even quickly in our lifetime, I pray, God, that you would use this as salt and as light to this lost world. Lord, that we would be um, those who bear truth, who speak, God, of your great love and of your forgiveness, calling people to repentance and to receive the redemption that we've received in you. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't you flip back over to the beginning of this chapter. And if you look at verse 1, John's speaking to us, and he's again telling us details, accounting some very specific things. And if you remember from the beginning, if we're looking again back to chapter 13 and keeping the contextual flow, we have to logically and, and, and rightly conclude that John's still where he was at when he told us where he was at at the beginning of chapter 13. And at the beginning of chapter 13, John said that he was standing upon the sea of the shore. And when he was standing upon the sea of the shore, he saw a few things. And in chapter 13, he said that he saw a beast rise up out of the sea and another beast come up out of the earth. And we've, we talked about those things exactly what they were last week. But as John continues to write about what he saw, we see that, or, or we conclude that he's still standing on the sand of the sea. And while doing so, he says, while still standing there, in other words, here in verse 1, that he looked and again he saw something else. He first saw the one beast rise up out of the sea, another beast rise up out of the earth, and then he saw, as he looked up, the lamb, a lamb, standing on Mount Zion. So it's all the same scene, all the same scenario, all the same information being given to John at one time, one place is a complete thought for you and I this morning to take in, even though it's taken a couple of weeks for us to go through all of this. And as John writes these things and he speaks about the Lamb, it's very clear from what we've already read, looking back, is that the Lamb is... Representative of Christ, it's 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 a it's a it's a no brainer symbolism for us to see. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. As a matter of fact, when John first wrote about seeing the Lamb, he said he saw a Lamb as though it was slain. The one who was worthy to come forth and take the scroll or the deed to the earth, the one who redeems. And now we see him in a different light, standing on the, on Mount Zion. And in light of what Hebrews chapter twelve verses twenty through, through twenty four tells us. Specifically, it speaks about um, a heavenly Mount Zion. There are some people who look at this chapter, look at these events, look at these things that John writes about, and says that these are things that are taking place in heaven. The heavenly Mount Zion. It speaks about it in Hebrews chapter 12. But this doesn't make sense in light of the fact that John clearly is still describing things that he says he sees are taking place upon the earth. Nothing's changed. Nothing's shifted. And so we must take that same line of thought. Furthermore, in verse 2, if you look, there is a location distinction being made for us. As John says that he then, from where he was at, compared to what he's recording, he said, I then heard what? A voice from heaven. And this again points out the fact that John was on earth hearing this voice as he is now telling us, as he is now seeing Jesus, the Lamb of God, in a literal return to the earth. Jesus, futuristic speaking, on Mount Zion. And again, in light of this, I want to remind you, this is where it comes into play that the book of Revelation as a whole does not read from the beginning to the end chronologically. Rather, each set of judgments, which we've gone through up to this point, the the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, what they do within themselves is they offer a chronological overview of the events that will take place during this seven-year period of time. Therefore, As we read now of Jesus' return, and we, we are told that we see Him standing on Mount Zion, which, by the way, is in the southernmost part of the city of Jerusalem, near the Temple Mount. As we're given this information and connected back to chapter 13, we see that it's clearly for the purpose of pointing out to us who will be standing with Jesus when He returns. That's the point. How do I know that? Because that's what everything else is being told to us in this chapter. There's no more that goes on to tell us about Jesus there on Mount Zion. In fact, um, if you, when we do read about that, when we do get the details about that, it's going to be in Revelation chapter 19. Same thing that John sees here, but it's told and accounted in detail in Revelation chapter 19. And all this is evident to us contextually in light of the fact that we've just been told in chapter 13 about the mark of the beast. Now, in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus' second coming uh, to the earth is accounted in detail, but John says here, here he says that when Jesus returns and stands on Mount Zion, he tells us that 144,000, specifically the 144,000 men who have been marked by God will be there by Jesus' side, they will be there with them, with him. And this is another reason to believe that this is a future event that John is taking place on the earthly, uh, 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 on, on an earthly Mount Zion, not in a heavenly one. Because these one hundred and forty-four thousand men are witnesses; they are the witnesses who had received the seal of God, previously told to us as we read through this book and and that seal is we're told in revelation chapter 7 is the name of God put on their foreheads and that too is a mark of ownership God's put his name on them it's a mark of ownership and, and not only that, we're told that it, was a, that it is to be a seal of protection, and this is the cool thing, and this is one of the things that's being revealed to us, is that it's a seal of protection that is to protect them through all seven years of the tribulation. Remember, this is what we're told back in Revelation chapter 7 when we read about four angels that are going to come forth with judgments. Four angels that are granted power in Revelation chapter 7 were told to harm the earth but what we read there is that these angels, as they're getting ready to be released upon the earth, is they're held back for a time. There's a voice that says, wait. And they're held back until this seal of protection can be put on the forehead of these 144,000 servant witnesses of God. Then... We read there that once they are sealed, the angels are released to do their harm on the earth, but before they go out, they're commanded or they're reminded to not harm the 144,000, the ones who have been sealed by God. Furthermore, in Revelation chapter 9, looking back again to another section which speaks about this, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, if you remember, that's where we are told about those really scary demonic creatures that come up from the bottomless pit. And when we are told about them, we see that they have been given power. We're told to torment all the men of the earth. But they cannot specifically, they cannot harm those who have been sealed by God. So if we take all of this into context and looking at what we're being told now, we see that as these men are now standing with Jesus on Mount Zion in the holy city of Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation, it demonstrates to us how every single one of them Will be protected through the tribulation period, just as God had promised, just as God had said. Now, anytime we talk about the seal, anytime we talk about the mark of God, you know, it should remind us of the seal that God has put on us as believers today. We too have God's name, we too have a mark of ownership. You know, we briefly talked about this in back in when we went through chapter seven, and when we first read about the 144,000 witnesses. But if we look throughout the the New Testament, and if we look to like Ephesians chapter one verse thirteen, it tells us that when we first believed, do you remember? When you first believed, when you said, okay, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. It was different for each one of us, but somehow we came to this place, in some sense, each one of us, where we said, what I've been doing is not good and God, Your way is better. And so I trust You. I believe in You. I put my faith in You. And, and, and we don't know, we didn't understand fully what that may meant at that time as we now have walked with the Lord a little bit. But, but when, if you think back to that time when you first believed that good news message of salvation, of God's grace through faith in Jesus, and put our trust in God, at that moment, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And by this seal, God has put His mark on us. With, literally, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God living in us. And it's a wonderful and awesome thing because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what changed everything. Changed everything. To begin with, the seal of the Holy Spirit... As I said, it's, it's the mark of God's ownership. And why is that important? Because the mark of God's ownership upon our lives gives us assurance, the Bible said. It assures us of our salvation. And, and you know why that's so important? It's because I wake up this morning and I still need that assurance. Because when I look at myself and see myself in light of God's perfection and God's holiness... I know there's no hope for me apart from God's grace. I need that assurance. I need to see that mark. I need to know that God's in me, that God's with me to assure me of my salvation. And, 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 and not only that, to testify to those around us exactly to whom we belong to. That's so what we begin to see that everything began to change. Everything changed when we first believed through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because God's nature was put in us and we became, we began to become something new. And, and, and people around us begin to look at us and they go, I don't know what's the matter with you, but you're not the same. Something's different. Something's different. And it's a testimony, it's a, it's a witness to those around us of exactly whom to whom we belong to. We have the mark of God. His ownership. Furthermore, in addition to being a seal or a mark of identification, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a a seal of protection. It's a warning to the enemy. It's a seal of protection. You know, that's one of the other reasons why people the mechanics put their marks on their tools is because if I find my tool in your toolbox, I'm going to protect it. And God does that for us. He lets the world know the supernatural world, the satanic powers of darkness, the principalities that war against us. It's like God says, He's mine. Don't mess with Him. It's God's mark of protection. And now Satan and all the powers of darkness that once enslaved us, that once controlled us, that once had dominion over us, no longer has power over us. And furthermore, the Bible tells us they must flee from the very presence of God that is inside of us. Remember, the Bible in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. And Jesus also told us that anyone who chooses to follow Him will not only receive eternal life, but they will never be snatched out of His or His Father's hand. In fact, this is recorded if you want to know where that's at, it's in John chapter 10, verses 27 through, 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 through verse 30, where Jesus speaks about being the good shepherd. And He says, my, my sheep, in verse 27, my sheep, you and I, we hear His voice. And He says, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. My Father, whom He has given them to Me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's Father's hand, and I, Jesus said, am my father and one. So the seal of God, this mark of God, it assures us of our salvation. It protects us as we journey through this life. And it sees us into the eternal life that is to come. And in addition to these things, we who have the seal of the Holy Spirit, you know, we also have a promise. We also have a promise that God who is in us and who is working through us will work in us to change and conform us into His likeness. A promise. And as all of us probably know, this is a process that usually doesn't proceed at a pace that we would like. Nevertheless, God has given us His Holy Spirit really as a tool, as a tool, the Bible says, of sanctification, and through Jesus' death, the Bible says that we become positionally sanctified. In other words, God sees us as those who are holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. Justified. Yet, when we take an honest look at ourself, it becomes clear quickly that we are also in a process of becoming holy like God is holy. That we are clearly not yet there. Nevertheless, God has promised to keep working into us. A promise, a seal, a mark, a promise to keep working in us until he finishes the work that he started when we first believed. That's what the Bible says. Paul, writing about this, said in Philippians chapter 1 in verses 3 through 6, he said, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for, you, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now. Being confident, says, Paul says, being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. A seal of promise. In verse 2 of chapter 14, we, we go on and John speaks more about not only what he saw, but what he heard. And he said, and I heard also a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could, and, and, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So in addition to seeing the 144,000, those who had been sealed by God, these witnesses who make it through the tribulation period, with Jesus there on Mount Zion, John tells us here that He heard a voice. Not just any voice, but a voice coming from heaven. A voice that was powerful like many waters. And He also heard, He said, at the same time, harpists playing their harps. and, And people and those singing in heaven a new song that no one else could learn except for these 144,000, the sealed men of God, the witnesses. Now, it may seem a little odd when you first think about this. One. It may seem a little bit odd about only certain people knowing a certain song and being able to sing it. What is this all about? What does this all mean? But when you understand that the voices in heaven who are singing are the tribulation saints, it begins to make A little bit more sense. Because the tribulation saints, the ones who are in heaven singing, that is heard, that that the 144,000 who are on the earth then begin to join in with, they are those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, the tribulation saints. And they were put to death for their faith, for not taking the mark. They're killed for their faith in Jesus during the tribulation. It's all of those who will come to faith through the testimony and witness of the 144,000. And they have this connection, they have this, this experience, and they're singing of a song, of this song. And and, and 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 the um, excuse me, they're singing, meaning the one hundred and forty four thousand singing of this song, along with the, the saints in heaven who have been martyred for their faith, as as the only ones who are able to sing this, begins to reveal really cool truth, because they're singing <laughs> of something that they shared. Something that they know. In light of this, and, and I always clarify this, very rarely do I do this, but you have to kind of put some things together. So it's really just my opinion, but, um, and do with it what you want, please. But in light of this, it's my opinion that the song that they're singing is their story. It's their story, literally a song about their conversion, a song about their tribulation experience, a song about their personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ during this time. And this is really cool because the fact of the matter is, is each one of us also has a unique and personal and intimate relationship with Jesus. And in the same sense, we too have our own song of praise. Our own song of worship that tells of our conversion, which tells about your own experience with Jesus and tells about your own intimate and personal relationship with the loving Redeemer. You see, we've all been saved and we've been saved from sin, but it's different, each one of us. Our experiences with God are unique. And we have a song of praise to sing. Now, when we first talked about the 144,000 back in chapter 7, the truth is, is I spent a lot of time going into explaining who they are. And clearly they are as the Bible says they are. And reinforces it here in these verses. 144,000 Jewish male virgins. And when we look back to chapter 7, we know that there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 times 12 is 144. And they live and minister for God during this time of tribulation. That's who they are. And this is important to know, especially in light of the fact that there are many religions today who wrongly teach that God has forsaken the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. And, and, and they claim in doing so to be this 144,000, either literally by number or figuratively as represented by this group of men. And, so, but if you're, and, 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 and I don't want to go into a whole lot more of that, but if you're interested in more of what the Bible says about about who these 144,000 men are, then you probably need to get the CD from back in chapter 7 when we studied through that a few weeks ago and where I go more into detail. But as for now, in light of our text here in chapter 13, um, we're going to look at four things that sets these 144,000 apart. Okay, Four things that we're told in, in, the, in, the, in the following verses that sets them apart. And... Um, um, uh, four things um, as far as the seal and the mark that specifically sets them apart from those who will receive the mark of the beast. Okay. Again, there's a contrast being painted here between these two chapters with these two groups of people. And the first thing is seen at the end of verse 3, if you look at it. And in verse 3 it says, Then they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were, were told about them who were redeemed from the earth. That's key. In other words, when we look at this and we're told this in verse 3 about these men being those who were redeemed from the earth, we understand literally that it means that those who have been purchased back by God. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we who do and have put our faith in Jesus, the truth is is we share in this same wonderful thing. Having been bought back by God. Having been redeemed by God. Now the Greek word for redeemed that is used here is the word um Agorazo. And it means to purchase specifically in order to set free. It means to purchase in order to set free. But it carries the idea of of, of someone going to the marketplace, searching of something for value to buy, and then purchasing it. Setting it and setting it free. And this is exactly what God has done for us. And this is what sets these guys apart from the others who have received the mark of the beast. These men have been redeemed. We have been redeemed. And we've been redeemed in that God saw us in our bondage. God saw us in our captivity. Captive to sin and captive to death. That eternal death that we're heading for. Yet at the same time, God saw value. God saw worth in us. And He made a decision to purchase us. And according to 1 Peter 1, verses 18-19, through it says that God purchased us not with corruptible things like silver and gold, which perishes, he says, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's how God redeemed us. That's what He bought us back with. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says that in Him, through Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood, through forgiveness of sins in accordance to the riches of God's grace. In other words, God did it because He's gracious. He did it because He loves us. And in light of this, we must keep in mind that we're freed men. Redeemed men are freed men. Redeemed women are freed women. Freed from sin. Freed from death. And therefore, you know what that means? We ought to live like it. We don't live like slaves. We don't live in bondage. We live like free people. And what does that mean? Is we rest in the work that God has done. You see, there's a certain freedom in knowing that God's the one that's done the work. There's nothing left for us to do but to believe. There's freedom to love Christ in that. To follow God, uh, not out of um, obligation, but out of a, a love relationship, a wantedness. To live as freed people. And rest in the work that God has done. You know when we do that, there's joy. When we do that, there's peace because we're not striving in our own whatever to do it. God's already done it. He set us free. To rest in the work that God has done to set us free. And and in addition, to fully receive the joy of our salvation. That's the other thing that it means to live free. To receive the joy of salvation. You know, sometimes you get a present that's it's too good to be true. You look at it and you go, I don't deserve that. Well, people didn't give it to you because you deserved it. They gave it to you because they loved you. And if it was about what we deserved, even in this life or for eternal life, we'd we get nothing. The truth is, and God didn't do it because we deserved it. He did it because He loves us. And, and when you understand that, you can receive the joy of your salvation. You can take the gift of God fully in and go, wow, this is awesome. It's mine. God did it for me. He gave it for me because of who He is. And there's a joy and you receive that joy and that's part of living free. Part of living free is is living and receiving the joy of your salvation. And that's what God desires. That's what He gave His life for. That's what He purchased us. And, and in, in addition to that, living, living as freed men means we don't go back to the things that once held us captive. We don't go back to being slaves. We don't go back to being in bondage. And, and Paul writes about that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Being slaves to men. Being slaves to this world. We we'll don't go back to Egypt. We leave those things behind. We forsake those things. And we go forward in the newness of life that we have in Christ Jesus. Now the second thing that we're told about these 144,000 is seen in verse 4. In verse 4 where it says, if you want to look there, that they are the ones who are not defiled with women for they are virgins. We go, why is that? Another case for the Catholics to have priests not married, right? No. No. That's not what this is about. There's a reason for why this is being told. Everything in Scripture has a purpose. And what is the purpose of these Jewish men being male virgins? And clearly, we know that if you look at this, that this is, this is not just a spiritual thing. This is a specific physical reference. It's a physical thing. And, and, and it does give the same kind of mindset in that they're completely and wholly set themselves apart to God. They've given themselves to no one else physically, except to God. Every aspect of their being is to God. But it also speaks to the spiritual and moral aspects of living in, la, in that they, these men, 144,000, again, in contrast to those who will take the mark of the beast, that they, unlike those who take the mark of the beast, remain spiritually and morally pure to God. This is also represented in this. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, whenever, think about it, whenever the nation of Israel turned from God and they turned to worshiping the false God, the pagan gods of the people around them, God, their God, Jehovah God, would declare that they had defiled themselves and that they had committed spiritual what? Adultery. Likewise, we who make up the church today, you know, one of the ways that we're depicted or one of the ways that we're pictured in the New Testament, we who have given our, our, our lives to God, put our faith in Jesus Christ, is that we're depicted as the bride of Christ. As the chaste bride of Christ. As the pure bride of Christ. As the undefiled bride of Christ. And this picture of being like a bride should remind us of how we're called to live holy and pure lives as we set ourselves apart to Jesus and pursue moral and spiritual purity. But the fact of the matter is, is when we talk about redemption, the first aspect of, that identifies these guys or sets these guys apart, when we talk about redemption and when we talk about those who have been freed and also... Those who are called to living holy and pure lives as chaste virgins, as the chaste virgin bride of Christ, it's good to remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to, to the church in Corinth. And, and, and this is because um, we don't want to get caught up in legalism. We want, want to be bound by the law. We want to have the right heart attitude as we look at these things. And so, in Paul, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And keeping this in mind, you know, living as freed men, living as freed women, being that chaste virgin bride who still is holy and pure, how does that all balance out for us in this life as we go forward? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, and he starts off by saying this in verse 12, he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Do you get that? We're free and, and, and we're no longer under the law, but that doesn't mean that, we're, 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 that everything that is out there is good for us. It's not helpful. He goes on he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Remember, it goes back to what we've been marked with, what we've been sealed with, the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we submit our lives to. That's who we're to be controlled by. Not to be brought under the power of any. You know, there's a lot of... I'm just going to do it. There's a lot of argument out there today about whether Christians can smoke marijuana since it's now what? Legal! Paul makes it really clear here that we're not to be brought under the power of any. You know, a Christian can have a drink. There's nothing wrong with that. But the moment that you step that line from having a drink to being drunk, you've just been brought under the power of what? The influence of what? The alcohol. And you've removed yourself from the place of being under the control of the Holy Spirit. You know, I spent a lot of time smoking dope before I got saved. And I'll be the first one to testify to you that when you smoke dope, you're under the influence of that drug. And so for no other reason, Christian believer today, know that this is not acceptable for us because it may be lawful, but it's not profitable. It may be lawful, but we're called to not be brought under the power of any. Who's our Lord? It's Jesus Christ. Who is the power that controls us? the Holy Spirit inside of us. Paul goes on and he says, He's, he kind of brings this into some, some contextual stuff for for the for the Corinthians for the application part of it, and he says food for the stomach is, is, is food is food for the stomach and, and stomach for the foods. But God will destroy both and them. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In other words, we're one with him. Shall then I take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? Again, it's this, this idea of the physical is really a representation of the spiritual or the moral. And, and there's a connection. And he says, he says, you know what? It's, it's, it's an adulterous thing. He says, should I do this? He says, certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord... Is one spirit for me, and then Paul goes on. He says, "Therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside of the body. But he who commits sexual immorality, or sexual uh, sexual immorality, he sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, again speaking of the seal of the mark, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you and we are not our own. That's the balance." That's the perspective that we must take. And the primary reason for not defiling ourselves and choosing to remain morally and spiritually pure is is so that we wholly and completely are able to give ourselves over to Jesus Christ as the Lord. Jesus said it really simply when when He spoke in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, and He said, Why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? But the Bible also calls us tomorrow and spiritual purity by the way that we live or excuse me, it, it calls us tomorrow and spiritual purity, because the way that we live is an example. The way that we live is an example, but it should be an example to those around us of what God's will is, and an example of truly what is good and acceptable to God.